First, do no harm. These words are part of the oath taken by doctors as they pledge to avoid intentionally hurting another person. But as the climate crisis grows more urgent and the contribution of healthcare systems to the problem becomes clearer, this oath is raising questions. Climate change will stress our healthcare systems. We could see everything from an increase in heat-related illnesses as temperatures rise, a spread of vector-borne diseases to new areas, an increase in asthma and allergies due to changes in air quality, and disruptions to healthcare service during extreme weather events. Yet healthcare systems are one of the leading polluters of the greenhouse gas emissions driving climate change. Roughly 10% of emissions in the U.S. come from healthcare. And if healthcare systems were a country, that country would be the fifth largest emitter in the world. I'm Lauren Ballatin, Emory Class of 2019. And I'm Meg Withers, Emory Class of 2019. On this season of Amplifier, we're exploring what climate action looks like for colleges and universities, including our own Emory University. And healthcare is a big part of our campus carbon impact. Institutional action by healthcare organizations and individual commitments from healthcare workers and medical students all play an important role in addressing this issue. To learn more about the relationship between climate and healthcare, we spoke with Dr. Shanda Demarest. Dr. Demarest is the Associate Director of Climate Engagement and Education at Healthcare Without Harm an organization that works to reduce the environmental footprint of healthcare internationally. She's also a cardiovascular nurse by practice. Growing up in rural Minnesota, Dr. Demarest felt a strong connection to nature. So strong a connection that she actually decided to minor in horticulture. As she was taking classes on soil science and climate change, she started to realize the interconnectedness of the planet and health. But she didn't really feel that sustainability was being integrated into her nursing curriculum and soon she found herself wanting to learn more. And I remember actually just Googling, where can a nurse work in the environment? And I was really keen on sort of shaping my practice from the conservation approach as opposed to kind of like the therapeutic modality. I think in healthcare, it's maybe more commonplace to do work where we're using nature as a therapy, but I was more interested in what impacts does our health sector have on the planet and how does a nurse have a role in reducing that? I was seeing, you know, with my own eyes in practice, how healthcare from a high level was having an impact on the planet. So now my role as Associate Director for Climate Engagement Education involves helping our healthcare sector understand its impact on climate change and kind of the environment more broadly, helping them measure that over time, reduce that impact, and bring the healthcare sector up to speed with how we can really fulfill our mission to do no harm. If you were to give someone kind of like a thousand foot overview of that healthcare without harm is doing in the U.S. and internationally, how would you describe that? That's a complex answer, so I'll give it a shot. We have a like a hospital partnership program called Practice Green Health. We partner with those Practice Green Health hospitals to help them set goals for how to be active in those primary areas. We also include focus on energy reduction, water reduction, healthier food in hospitals, things like transportation and emissions reduction. 
by doing that, we're able to help health systems understand the connectedness amongst all of these environmental topics in healthcare, set goals for improvement, and measure that over time. Um, we have a couple additional programs that are global in scope. So for example, we have the Healthcare Climate Challenge to help set goals for how to reduce carbon emissions, but also how to be climate resilient. The additional global challenge I'll reference is called the Race to Zero, and it's an international race to zero across all three scopes. So there are a lot of emissions that healthcare doesn't have as close of control over as they might say for energy used on site or even things like anesthetic gases that are used in, in patient care on site. And so this race to zero helps health systems not only commit to reducing the emissions that they have direct control over, but it asks them to be really bold and figure out how to partner with some of the other sectors that have an impact on emissions more broadly and work to reduce those as well. To that end, what do you think are some of the biggest barriers that healthcare systems face in becoming more sustainable? I'll start with perception. Oftentimes, pushback that we'll hear related to sustainability and climate initiatives is this is too expensive. And there are certainly aspects of mitigation and resilience that will cost more. There might be a higher price tag associated with some of these initiatives. It can be extremely difficult for health systems to justify a higher price tag up front in the interest of saving dollars in the future. But it's difficult for those sustainability professionals to help their health systems understand the total cost of operations. So not only the financial, but also the risks involved in not taking action. So the framing and the cost is a big barrier. The other piece is oftentimes it's maybe one or two or three sustainability professionals within a single healthcare system that are pushing this envelope. Think about that. It's it's one person trying to help an entire system decrease their environmental impact. And to be truly successful, sustainability and climate action needs to be every staff member's work within a system, and that requires leadership commitment. And when a system has just one person with maybe a few volunteers that are part of a green team, which is most often what the case is, the likelihood for longitudinal commitment, you know, even enough hands on deck to, to manage the measurement and the implementation of these initiatives, it really wavers. And I, I would say that's another major barrier. Are there any specific calls to action that you would recommend for Emory or for other healthcare organizations in general? Are there any specific commitments you think we need to be seeing in order to realize climate goals? So generally, I think it's probably will be most successful for health systems to start with sustainability and socialize that concept of the environment impacting human health and helping their staff and their leaders ease into this work. I hesitate to say, you know, uh, that health systems 
right away committing to net zero is the way to go. I think because of some of these barriers we've talked about, integrating sustainability sort of low level first is is a great start. So for example, for the health systems in the United States, I reference Practice Green Health, which is our hospital partnership program. Joining Practice Green Health is low hanging fruit, really simple for health facilities or systems to do. And they're able to gain access to this whole suite of resources that whether it's a sustainability professional or a leader or even clinicians working in a health system, they can access those resources and technical assistance and learn what it takes to build a sustainability program, to establish an environmental commitment statement, to establish objective goals for the full facility to meet pertaining to what they're most interested in working on. So maybe that's energy, maybe that's chemicals or food or water, for example. So th that's a very easy first step. Then once a system has some established leadership commitment to environmental action, the higher level climate work comes next. And so we are really interested in helping health systems align with these national and international initiatives to measure what their emissions are in the first place. So where do emissions come from in the health system? And basically what percentage of emissions are directly controlled by hospital operations and how many of those emissions are coming from that supply chain? Somewhere between 75 and 82% of emissions actually come from scope three, so those tough to control emissions. And in order to work really strategically and establish the tactics to reduce that, health facilities have to know where the damage is being done. You know, we know that in order to achieve a healthy planet, uh, in order to cap emissions and prevent our temps from rising, you know, greater than 1.5 degrees Celsius, it behooves us to have our emissions by 2030 and get to net zero by 2050. Those are the goals. So that would be my more ambitious ask is signing up for that race to zero and understanding how health emissions are having an impact on the planet and anchoring all of this to the mission of protecting human health. Not only that patient that's in the bed or on the operating table, but more broadly, patient health in the community. In addition to these more top-down actions that, that could be taken, are there some more action points that you might have for maybe patients or individual doctors that they could do to, to help their healthcare systems that they're involved with you know, take some of these steps? Healthcare Without Harm has a program called the Physician Network that's led by my colleague, Dr. Amy Collins. And the Physician Network is a collective of docs across the country and, and then some that are working to understand how climate change and environment impact the health of their patients and how they can be advocates for change. And there have been some really interesting spin-offs within specializations that are worth noting. So for instance, Surgeons for a Sustainable Future. So the operating room has some of the most energy intensive, waste productive, emissions intensive work within a hospital. And surgeons have major leadership opportunities to reduce that environmental impact. 
and they're putting heads together to to push change within the surgical suite. And so the the specialties that are starting to focus on sustainability and climate is a really great way for doctors coming into the field to think about how the work they do every day has a distinct environmental impact and how that impacts in turn the patients that they're working with. Another one I'll mention, of course, because I'm a nurse, is the Nurses Climate Challenge. And so this is a program that aims to provide nurses the materials and the resources to learn about the health impacts of climate change themselves, but also then to teach their peers. It's kind of based on the Marshall Gans snowflake model or the train the trainer advocacy model. And the Nurses Climate Challenge has... Basically, we've we've been around for close to five years now, and we have nurses in every state except for Oklahoma. So if you're a nurse from Oklahoma, like register for the challenge and get to work educating colleagues about how climate impacts uh, patients in your region. But we have a goal of reaching 50,000 nurses and, and students educated by the end of this year, 2022. And so that's been a really compelling advocacy model to scale up climate education and climate action within a multitude of care settings. So direct care, community care, school nursing, and and actually education. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we have something called the School of Nursing Commitment within the Nurses Climate Challenge. And basically it's a commitment between nursing schools to educate their nursing students about all of this stuff that we're talking about. And Emory is actually participating in that. And so I'm super excited to say that Emory School of Nursing has been a leader in not only educating its students about climate and, and how to be a climate advocate and, and actor, but also uh, you know developing research around climate impacts and sort of environmental work more broadly. We also aim to be much more inclusive of other health professionals as well. Well, you know, for folks listening, if you come from a, a direct care path that may not be a doc or a nurse, you're absolutely welcome to engage with us and check out these materials as well. Because at the end of the day, we all are trying to work together to, you know, achieve the bottom line or achieve for the end user, which is always the patient, improved health to do no harm. In 2010, Emory University emitted 342,624 metric tons of CO2. For reference, about one metric ton of CO2 is emitted on a flight from Paris to New York. The university has pledged to reach net zero emissions in 2050, and as of 2019, it had succeeded in reducing emissions by 31% since 2010. This is great progress, but there's about 69% left to go. Healthcare contributes to Emory's emissions in many ways, and it can be very difficult to track and reduce those emissions. That may be why the goals for Emory Healthcare are regularly less ambitious than those for the university as a whole. For example, Emory has the goal that by 2025, 75% of university food served on campus will be either locally or sustainably grown. But for healthcare, that goal is only 25% of food served in cafeterias and hospitals. And not only are the goals often less aggressive for healthcare, some parts of the healthcare system are left out of the calculations entirely. 
Buildings that are not on the three main campuses are excluded from Emory's emissions reports. I'm just going to read these off for you. Excluded buildings include, quote, Emory University Healthcare at Wesley Woods, Emory University Hospital Midtown, Emory University Orthopedics and Spine Hospital, Emory St. Joseph's Hospital, Emory Johns Creek Hospital, Emory Decatur Hospital, Emory Hillendale Hospital, Emory University Healthcare Smyrna Yerkes Field Station, Oxford College Campus, and all other outlying Emory-owned facilities, end quote. So this raises some questions. If healthcare is known to contribute so greatly to greenhouse gas emissions, why are the goals for Emory Healthcare less aggressive, and why are so many buildings excluded from the net zero effort? We reached out to a physician within the Emory Healthcare system who's been involved in making his practices more sustainable. Dr. Adam Klein is a laryngologist and professor at the Emory University School of Medicine, where he specializes in voice, swallowing, and airway disorders. He's also co-director of the Emory Voice Center and chief of the Division of Laryngology. Dr. Klein is also very involved in sustainability. Like Dr. Demarest, this interest stems from his day-to-day life. He is committed to being more sustainable in his home, and he wants to carry that into his work as a physician. When he traveled to Israel and countries in Latin America in the past, he noticed that sustainability felt like a priority, and he began considering why healthcare is so important in the climate movement. Healthcare is, depending on the source you read, responsible for at least 5% or more of carbon emissions. And so not only do we have a duty to treat our patients, but we also have a duty to treat and protect the community at large. And so if we're contributing to emissions, then we have to consider our influence on all of those things in our day-to-day practice. And so if we are taking care of patients at the expense of the greater community by contributing to pollution from our healthcare facilities, then we're not really doing full service. Could you walk us through some of the day-to-day activities that you're implementing to be more sustainable? My practice is broken up into several different facets. So I I work in a clinical space, I work in what's called an endoscopic space, and I work in the operating room space. And each of those has their own challenges when it comes to sustainability. I'd say the easiest scenario for for me to have any impact is in the clinical setting because you do have some control over what you ask your team to purchase and how you're going to use or discard of things. Uh, So I'd say the best example in the clinical setting that I can think of is a scenario that came up probably about two years ago when the Joint Commission came through, infection control uh, people came through, and they wanted to revamp the way in which we process our scopes. So in ear, nose, and throat, and specifically in laryngology, we do a lot of scoping through the nose and mouth to look at the voice box and look at the uh, throat. And those scopes have to be processed. Once they were cleaned, they would go into a plastic bin on the wall to be kept safe and, and clean and dry until the next patient came. And around that time, they asked us to get rid of those and use plastic bags, which basically looked like small garbage bags of different colors, a green for a clean scope and a red for a dirty scope. 
And they wanted us to take a scope that had freshly been processed, put it in a green bag and bring it into the room in front of the patient. And then once you were done with the scope, you'd put it in a second bag that was sitting there, a red bag, to be brought back to the processing room. So in our clinic, we probably safely scope 40 patients a day using two plastic bags per patient, uh, five days a week. You can do the math. It adds up to a ton of single-use plastic, right, that was just going to get thrown away immediately after use. So that really irked me and went against my grain and I I refused. I said, no, we're not going to do that. We have to find out another solution. And we um, pretty quickly settled on something that works using very large plastic bins. And uh, basically, once a scope is processed, it goes in a bin and the bin has a they, they put a sticker on it and it's a green sticker. And when you tear off the green sticker, there's actually a red one right beneath it. And so they just bring that bin into the room. We use the scope. We put the scope back in the bin tear off the tiny little green sticker, make it uh, so that it's red. And then that bin goes back out to, to the sterilization room. The bin itself gets cleaned as well as the scope. Um, I'd say in the operating room setting, in some hospital settings, the challenges get a little bit more difficult because you're dealing now with many different chefs in the kitchen, right? So in the operating room setting, there's many, many different teams, many different people. And even though we all work together, there's just a lot of different things that are happening in a lot of different directions and behind the scenes in order to make everything come together. And so to implement change in the operating room setting can be somewhat challenging. And if you combine that with the fact that there's always um, new people coming into that room all the time, to uh, implement a change in practice and then have it continue can be uh, very, very uh, difficult. Um, And so what we are able to do relatively easily is influence what we ask for. So anytime a surgery is done, there's what's called a case card. And that case card has a list of what you plan on using during a given case. And many of those historically have just kind of been passed on and are used uh, as a format for anyone who does that specific kind of case. And they may very well have a lot of superfluous single-use items on there, whether it be gauze or something called pledgets or uh, sutures or many other supplies as well. And so I took the time to go through these cards and find where those wasted supplies were on those cards and ask them not to bring those out and open them until I've asked for them. Uh, That's not always possible in every single case because there are some high acuity cases where everything needs to be ready. But in a good number of cases, uh, and I would have to say for, for many of us, the majority of cases, we do have a bit of luxury of time to say, okay, you know what, I am going to need product X. Can you please open that now and we'll use it for this case? Uh, can really save quite a lot. It's interesting to be able to, you know, think about the steps that are actually being taken because you might hear a lot about things healthcare organizations should be doing, but to actually see those things in practice is exciting. So if you could speak to any specific success stories, has there been anything within your work, within Emory, or even outside of Emory and other health organizations? Yeah, so um, I mean, I, I kind of gave you a couple of little examples of success in my own personal uh, career. I, I want to give a shout out to an anesthesiologist that I work with, and she spent a lot of time a number of years ago to create a better way for disposal of different products in the operating room setting by creating a system with several different types of bins and bags or disposal of very, very specific things. And so that I, I think those types of examples are attainable and basic. I mean, we do that in our everyday lives when we're you know throwing away garbage, whether it goes in the trash or recycling or compost. 
you know, to, to introduce that kind of system, that kind of mentality and culture in the operating room setting, I think is, is really critical to getting everyone on the same page. Unfortunately, it's really hard to enforce it. It's really hard to get everyone to buy into it, which has to do with, you know, again, some of the hurdles of this, which is a heavy turnover in the healthcare industry. And so people could be different people every time you go into the operating room and they may not be aware of the, the system that's there. As it trickles down to those of us that are kind of in the trenches day to day, there's really no, I would say, accountability uh, and no metric to measure us by. So, for example, if I am picking a product or device or, uh, you know, a single use item to use, nowhere in any of the metrics does it go under my name that I use something that maybe wasn't as sustainable as another option I could have picked. And so I think it can be challenging sometimes because it's not always many options for things. But oftentimes there are options. And I think if we start to hold ourselves accountable, hold each other accountable for sustainability, and then ultimately hold the hospital system and the vendors accountable for decision making and practices that they follow will hopefully drive competition between vendors and between you know, kind of friendly competition between each other to try to be as sustainable as possible. When you look at healthcare as a whole, you might see people like you who are doing these things in their practices, but on a larger scale, both in the U.S. and internationally, you don't see that happening at every healthcare organization. So is there anything specific that you think is the main barrier to that? Once you're in a hospital system, in the healthcare system, with many, many different scenarios, right, hospital scenarios, operating room scenarios, clinical scenarios, off-site clinical scenarios, and you factor in many, many people who often, as I mentioned, turnover quite frequently, and you factor in that it's medical care, which people have very high expectations for, and they always want the best. And there's also some real disposal issues with some healthcare products, right? If they have um, any sort of contamination or, or fluids or anything on them. If, when you start to put all of these things together, it gets very, very complicated and hard to make huge strides. Awareness is another barrier. Even though we all hear about climate change and air pollution and all of these things every single day on the news, I think for many people, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily translate into the impact that their conduct day to day in the healthcare setting might, uh, how that might contribute to the overall problem. Even just being aware of the percentage of contribution to overall carbon emissions, you know, it's probably not something that many people are fully aware of that healthcare is up there on the list as one of the big contributors you know, uh, uh, to emissions. So awareness is a big barrier as well. And education, you know, like in many situations, is, is a good starting place to start changing the overall culture. Absolutely. And the other thing that I'm curious to know is when you're implementing these sustainability practices in your work, is that something that patients are generally aware of? Or is it something that kind of happens in the background and they don't really see it? My guess is that patients are not typically aware of any sort of sustainability efforts. 
I don't really think it's at the forefront of most people's minds. And whether or not they're using recycled gauze or uh, you know biodegradable products is not necessarily the first thing that you're thinking about. There's an opportunity there to advertise that, and in the lobbies, you know, in the lobbies or in the main hallways or something, to boast about the fact that this it's a sustainable environment. I think then it would be noticed and appreciated. Then I think it, it then it opens the uh, the door to have conversations in further detail. So if you had to make kind of a call to action, whether that's for healthcare workers or for healthcare systems as a whole, are there any steps that you would call for to be taken to reduce the environmental and the climate impact of healthcare organizations? Yeah, I think we have an opportunity and, and as I alluded to earlier, a responsibility to be aware and and accountable for the contribution we may be making to the overall carbon emissions related to our healthcare practices. I think we all have the opportunity to critically review what we're doing day to day and look for small gaps or opportunities to make improvements. There's always small opportunities and sometimes there are much larger opportunities. But it might take going through that with a fine-tooth comb and maybe bringing in a consultant or someone really focused and looking through that lens to ask the hard questions of, are, you know, is there any other way you could be doing this? Or is there a reason you're using this product A and not product B? And is, is a vendor known for their sustainability practices? So I think um, just, you know, making it a, a focus, making it a priority in your own practice and in your team's practice, in your department's practice, you know, if we start to chip away at it, we can make some significant impact on the overall problem. Dr. Demarest and Dr. Klein outlined many strategies to help healthcare organizations be more sustainable. From systems-wide changes to shifts in individual behavior, everyone has a role to play. Many changes can also start at the administrative level, from choosing where healthcare facilities are sourcing their energy to what they're doing with their waste streams after. Healthcare organizations can better address these choices by appointing medical directors for sustainability, organizing sustainability committees, and committing to comprehensive decarbonization plans in line with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Many universities are also affiliated with healthcare systems. And while many universities have climate action and sustainability commitments, they often don't include healthcare in these plans. Emory has included its healthcare system in its sustainability initiatives, and a lot has been accomplished. They built LEED-certified buildings, lessened waste in operating rooms, reduced energy usage, and so on. But the goals set for Emory Healthcare are still lagging far behind those of the rest of the university. And not only that, many healthcare buildings are left out of Emory's emissions calculations entirely. So while some progress is being made, a great deal of work still remains to be done. To make true progress in reducing its contribution to climate change, Emory should include all healthcare buildings in its goal of net zero. These buildings need much more intense focus because it's likely that they have high emissions and have been given low priority in campus-wide sustainability plans. A climate-centered curriculum in the medical school would also help ensure that the future generation of physicians truly understands the intersection of climate change and human health. This would be beneficial to both Emory University as a top-tier medical school 
and to the people who rely on Emory for their health care. On a broader scale, Emory's administration has been unclear in its current sustainability and climate commitments. In an ideal world, Emory would vocalize strong support for its sustainability and climate programs. But in reality, grassroots efforts may take on more importance to enacting change. If you're a healthcare worker, consider participating in Healthcare Without Harm's climate programming, such as by joining the Physicians Network or committing to the Nurses Climate Challenge. Find ways to incorporate sustainability into your work, inspire others to do the same, and urge administrators to make climate action a priority. Students are also essential in advocating for greener healthcare systems. They can join national coalitions such as the Medical Students for a Sustainable Future or similar organizations on campus. And if there's not a climate action organization in your medical school, start one. Connect with your peers to advocate for more sustainability courses in your curriculum. Join with others to bring institutional change to healthcare. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Special thanks to Dr. Shanda Demarest and Dr. Adam Klein for joining us to share their perspectives. You can learn more about sustainable healthcare and find resources to get involved by visiting our show notes. You can also learn more about Amplifier on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. This week's episode was reported and produced by Lauren Ballatin and Meg Withers. The music was provided by Zola Berger-Schmitz and the graphics by Tyler Stern.